Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Let's Run, the Western Mass Running Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Gaudet. This podcast is made possible thanks to the resources at East Hampton Media. When I'm out running with friends, one of the most frequent topics of conversation is dealing with injuries. In this podcast, I speak to Dr. Tara Futrell, who specializes in sports and exercise medicine at Bay State Health Medical Practices, with offices in both Northampton and Greenfield. Tara's areas of specialty include acute injuries and chronic overuse injuries. Dr. Futrell is the head physician for the Springfield Thunderbirds hockey team and works with athletes from many sports, including runners. Tara has worked in the medical tent at the Boston Marathon. She is also a runner herself, as well as a cyclist and a swimmer, and has participated in a number of triathlons. It's been my experience that healthcare professionals who are runners or athletes have a better appreciation of my running-related issues. Dr. Futrell's goal is to help her patients safely return to their activity as quickly as possible, while also taking steps to maintain their fitness during recovery. In the podcast, Tara shares her expertise on a number of running-related topics. We discuss running injuries such as shin splints and Achilles. We discuss factors that can contribute to injuries such as running volume and running surfaces. And things that runners can do to avoid injury, such as selecting the proper running shoes in orthotics. It's a very informative podcast, and I think you'll learn some things from the conversation. I know I did. And stay tuned afterwards for a rundown of local running events, as well as a story about pork burritos and steroids. I'd like to now introduce Dr. Tara Futrell to the podcast. Dr. Futrell specializes in sports and exercise medicine at Bay State Health Medical Practices with offices in both Greenfield and Northampton. Dr. Futrell, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks very much for having me, Tim. Dr. Futrell graduated from the University of Texas Houston School of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine and pediatric residency at Bay State Medical Center in Springfield. She completed a sports medicine fellowship at UMass Worcester. Now, I understand you liked it so much here in Western Mass that you decided to stay. We did, yeah. We moved up here from Houston. I was born and raised in Texas. Um, but uh, when I matched for my residency at Bay State in Springfield, uh, we just really came to, to love this area. And it's, it's so different than where we were in Texas, but and made such good friends through my uh, residency that we just decided to stay. Well, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad you did. So um, your expertise is in sports and exercise medicine. Could, could you just talk about that for a minute? Of course. So my initial training was in internal medicine, which is adult medicine uh, and pediatrics, obviously, which is kids. And then I did a primary care sports medicine fellowship. So that's a little bit different than uh, it's not an orthopedic fellowship, right? So I'm not a surgeon. So primary care sports medicine focuses on, you know, treating athletes um, of all ages um, from children all the way through uh, adulthood and taking care of, of injuries, kind of both chronic um, that, you know, occur over time and also acute injuries. So when you think of like being the physician on the sideline of a, of a soccer game or a football game and, and taking care of an athlete when they're injured in that moment. Um, so that's, that's primarily what I do. So you work with athletes from many sports and I think you, you have sideline experience with football, soccer, basketball, field hockey, uh, ice hockey athletes. Lacrosse. Yeah. Rugby. You're the head team physician for the Springfield Thunderbirds hockey team. That's true. So, uh, do you attend the games? I do. So I cover probably close to 20 to 30 games a year for the Thunderbirds. They usually have close to 80 home games a season. Uh, and so I'm uh, physically present at about half of them. Uh, and I have another physician that I work with. Actually, I have a group of other physicians that I work with that help me with that coverage as well. So I'm there um, you know, sitting in the stands, watching uh, what's happening on the ice and uh, available to go into the training room to, to treat any injuries that might happen during the, 
during the game, both for the Thunderbirds and also for the visiting team. So um, AHL teams don't travel with their own physicians. So the home team physicians are responsible for the other team as well. So how often would incident occur where you'd have to go down to the trainer's room? Oh, every game. I mean, some games, it's not that frequent. It's maybe, you know, once a period or something. And there are other games where it seems like I spend the entire game in the, in the training room. <laughs> so it's, it's very variable. Wow. So like I said earlier, you work with athletes from many other sports, but I imagine you see a lot of runners come to your office. I do take care of a lot of runners. Obviously, it's, you know, one of the most popular recreational sports out there. Uh, and it's something you can do throughout a lifespan. So it's, it's great to take care of, you know, younger runners who are, you know, just getting into the sport, whether it be through track or cross country, you know, all the way through high school and, you know, seeing kids getting excited about looking for, you know, getting the scholarships or being able to run in college, you know, all the way through, you know, adult masters runners. Um, I love seeing especially women who kind of come to running um, a little bit later. Uh, and really embrace it and enjoy it. Uh, and I think I, I've taken care of a couple of master's athletes. Uh, one woman was uh, participated in the Senior Olympics. She was a runner uh, and had qualified for the Senior Olympics. Um, and then another gentleman I took care of, he was, he was maybe in his 80s, um, but wow. a, a lifelong runner. Yeah, so it's great. Yeah, my daughter, I was just talking to my daughter. So she, um, she's kind of a casual runner. I'll say she's 13 years old. And she, um, I asked her yesterday, do you want to come running with me? And she complained about her knee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I should send her to see you. I'd be happy to see her. Young for arthritis, but uh, she probably has uh, a runner's knee. That's a common one for sure. Yeah, all I could offer her was, um, well, maybe you can check your shoes. Maybe you need a new pair of running shoes and, you know, do, do a proper warm-up um, before and, and stretch afterwards. I, I find that a, a lot of runners, you know, don't bother with that. You know, I was showing her some kind of warm-up exercises. I, I, think, um, I think some people actually stretch before they run. And, and I, I think the, the uh, advice is you do a dynamic warm-up before running and then stretch afterwards. Yeah. Do I have that right? That's yeah, that's kind of the the more common uh, recommendations that we that we give now is, you know, focusing on a more dynamic warm up to just get the the joints warm and kind of get the lubrication going and and warm up muscles and and tendons and ligaments. Um, And then, you know, really focus on stretching after your workout. You know, interestingly, there's actually very little good evidence to support either of those recommendations. (laughs) That's what we tell patients to do. But, you know, when you really dig into the literature, really there's one study that supported uh, stretching uh, to help prevent plantar fasciitis and post exercise stretching to reduce the risk of hamstring injuries. But there's, yeah, there's really just not a a lot of good uh, studies out there, but that is, that is what we tell people to do. Yeah, interesting. So um, talked about treating runners, and I, I believe you've treated runners at the Boston Marathon. Yeah, I covered the Boston Marathon in 2015. Oh, I ran that race. Yeah, I was there in the medical tent. Yeah, I was going to ask where you were, you know, um, which tent. We, we, I know there's a big one in Newton Wellesley. I was in the I was in the big medical tent at the finishing line, uh, caught one. We were literally the first, uh, my team was the very first bed in that first big medical tent. Well, fortunately, I haven't had a need to go to the medical tent. That's good. That was a cold, rainy year. It was. And we had so many runners develop hypothermia. We basically like ran out of warming blankets and warm fluids and warm IV bags. It was just, it was, it, that was a tough year. Everyone's different, I guess. I, I, I love that weather. And, and then the subsequent years were much warmer and I, um, I, I struggled more in those races. Yeah, it's interesting. You have to be ready for both, right? You have to have the, the cooling tanks to be ready for that hot year where people are really going to suffer from, uh, you know, heat illness and you have to rapidly cool them down. Or it could be totally opposite and you're dealing with hypothermia um, and having to warm people up. Yeah, the middle of April in Boston, uh, you, you get a wide range of uh, weather. That is true, yeah. So you're a lifelong athlete, and so you can relate to the needs and concerns of injured athletes. Um, 
most runners, when they go to the doctor's office, don't want to be told to stop running for any significant length of time. Uh, does, does that present a challenge to you as a physician? It can present a challenge. It, it really does depend on, on what their injury is. Obviously, there are some conditions and injuries that are, are safe to, to continue to train through with some modifications, whether that be um, a reduction in mileage or um, uh, a, a, a change of maybe surface or type of training. Uh, but there are other conditions that are obviously much more serious and, and you do have to tell people, look, I'm sorry, you know, you can't, you can't run through this. You know, if you have a stress fracture of your hip or a stress fracture in your foot or your, your shin, you, you know, you can't run through that. What I will talk about is a way to help keep people active and strong. So we try to minimize their, their loss of fitness and strength as best we can. Um, so it, you know, it depends on the injury and whether or not it's safe to train through that injury or not. Right. Yeah. My, my experience has been that medical professionals who are also athletes, uh, you know, they, they have a better understanding of, uh, my complaints. Uh, you, you being an athlete, you can certainly, you know, relate to, um, runners and other athletes in general. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a big plus. So what are some of the most common complaints that you get from runners? So I would say it somewhat depends on age. Um, you know, younger runners are, are potentially going to get a slightly different set of, uh, have a slightly different set of issues than older runners. But, you know, most common are probably conditions around the knee. So whether that's uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome, otherwise known as runner's knee, or IT band syndrome, uh, patella tendonitis. Uh, and then kind of the next more common areas are things around the, the hip, uh, the ankle and the foot. So it, it's, you know, generally lower body from the, from the low back down. So I solicited input from runners uh, prior to our conversation and I Great. asked them to um, pose questions. You know, what would they like to ask a sports and exercise physician? And, and so I have a few um, questions and topics that I'd like to talk to you about. First one is, how do I avoid getting shin splints? And then once I get them, you know, how can I uh, recover from them quickly? So shin splints can happen um, for a number uh, of reasons. Uh, they typically happen because it's a, it's a stress injury, right? So it's a stress injury to the tibia. And uh, you can develop shin splints if you increase your training, um, either mileage or intensity too quickly. So you ramp up your running too fast. You can develop shin splints if you're uh, kind of a heavy runner. So if, if you're getting kind of higher ground force reaction because you're maybe overstriding and landing on your heel, that can cause the, you know, increased stress through the, through the tibia. Um, tightness in the calf and Achilles can sometimes lead to, um, to shin splints. And if you start to develop them, then the first thing you need to do is kind of take a look at those factors. Did, did you recently increase your training intensity or your volume? And if that's the case, then you need to back that down, right? You need to cut that, that training volume down until your, your shins are not, are not hurting anymore. Um, maybe taking a look at your shoes uh, and, and your gait, the way that you're running. Um, could switching to running on a slightly softer surface be helpful um, could running in maybe a little bit more of a cushioned shoe be helpful? And then, uh, you know, focusing on um, stretching and soft tissue mobility, even though we don't have great evidence, um, there is some indication that tight, uh, tight calves, uh, the gastrocnemius and the soleus muscles um, may be contributing to, to shin splints. So focusing on stretching and foam rolling um, that area after a run. Right. So you mentioned the, the gait and, you know, maybe running as a heel striker as opposed to a midfoot mm -hmm. striker. And, and uh, uh -huh. I, um, a few years ago, I had an issue with my Achilles. And, and so when I was recovering, my physical therapist um, had she made a video of me running on a treadmill. Yeah. Included that I was a heel striker and she had recommended she running. Is that something you're familiar with? And uh, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It, that's the kind of the focus on, um, 
you know, transitioning to more of a, a midfoot strike, potentially even looking at going into more of a minimalist shoe. Um, yeah, my takeaway from it was before I run, there's certain exercises that you can do where you um, step on the kind of your ball of your foot, you know, so you're doing like a pre-race warm up, and um, yeah, and and I I think over time you do it long enough, then muscle memory takes over, and then mm-hmm. you run more on the mid yeah part of your foot and not your heels yeah one one kind of little cue um i like to give runners when we're thinking about um shortening their stride length and trying to get them to be um more of a midfoot striker and like just thinking about kind of landing a little more softly um one is if they're running on a treadmill um how loud are you when you run on a treadmill like if you've got your headphones in and you're on a treadmill and you hear that thud, 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 you know, over your, over the music in your headphones, you're probably a heel striker and you're hitting the ground pretty hard. So what I'll, what I'll tell people is, so imagine, um, imagine that you're running through a puddle and you want to make the smallest splash possible, right? So that means you're going to really shorten your, your stride. And you're going to kind of land more on the, the midfoot or towards the ball of your foot. And you're going to have a really, really fast reaction time with the ground because you don't want to make that big heavy splash. Right. So think about running through puddles and making a really small splash. Yeah, that's, that's a good thing to think about. And running cadence as well. So if you have any kind of technology, either on your watch or your phone, that can give you information about the cadence or how fast your foot turnover is. Uh, there's kind of, I think 180 is, a, a 180 steps per minute is a little bit of the magic number right now that suggests that your, your stride length is, is shorter and your ground force reaction time is smaller. Well, that's interesting. I, yeah. I, my watch does give me that. I generally don't pay much mind to it, but maybe I, I right. should start looking at that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. You, you mentioned ramping up too quickly. And, um, I think the rule of thumb is, when you're increasing your distance, don't go up more than 10% a week. I don't know. Do, do you have a recommendation on that? That's typically the recommendation I'll give people, especially if they're recovering from an injury. So if I've got a runner that was, you know, kind of training, you know, pretty high mileage, you know, uh, and they either sustain a soft tissue injury or a, a stress reaction or stress fracture, as we're getting them back to running, uh, I have a protocol that I use for runners to help get them back um, to their running. But I do use the 10% per week rule. Um, it's slow and it can be frustrating for, for runners because it is quite slow. But it does it can help people um, uh, from, from doing that too much, too soon, too fast kind of right. um, pattern. Yeah, my um, rule of thumb on marathon training, if I'm not following a plan, I my long run, my longest long run before a marathon would be 20 miles. And, but I generally go up like two miles a week on my long run. So mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm starting at, say, eight or 10 as a ba- from a yeah. pace of eight or 10, then I would go 12 and 14 right. and, and so on each, each yeah. subsequent week. Uh, yeah. Figured, well, it's a little bit more than 10%, but it's 20, two is 10% of 20. <laughs> Right. And, you know, for more experienced runners who are, you know, aren't coming back from an injury, that might be just fine. Yeah. So other uh, inputs from from runners. Um, Someone asked, uh, how do I avoid cramps and injury to my calf, Achilles and hamstring? I know there's a lot there. Um, Yeah, there's a lot there. (laughs) (laughs) But so let's um, I want to talk about Achilles uh, because I personally I, I had, you know, an Achilles injury. I don't think it was ever a tear, but it's funny. I. Mm -hmm. This was a number of years ago. I went out running and I, I felt some pain in my Achilles. But mm-hmm. as a runner, I just kind of finished my run. I, I didn't stop. And, and then when I got back, it was, it was really bad. I, I couldn't run again. I didn't run for months afterwards. And, um, yeah. and, then, and then that was maybe 10 years ago. And then maybe about five years ago, I had a recurrence of that. Because as soon as I felt something, I stopped. And even when I run today, I just sometimes I'll feel a little bit of pain there uh mm-hmm. in which now i just cut back on my distance a little or just take some ibuprofen and I'm, i think i'm able to manage it reasonably well but any, any advice i also had another question here about achilles where someone actually had recovered from a rupture 
and had yeah. a surgical repair. And, and so they, they wanted to know what, what kind of injuries they'd be susceptible to. So when we think about uh, Achilles injuries in runners, um, they're more likely to happen to older runners. Uh, and, and Achilles tendon problems are developed basically because of overuse. Um, so th the pattern is basically an overloaded uh, tendon that doesn't uh, have enough time to recover and then you are just kind of chronically overloading this tendon. And tendons don't, they don't heal well from that kind of type of chronic overload because they don't have a good blood supply. It's not like muscle tissue that has this really great direct blood supply to help, to help heal it. Tendons are not, are not like that. So when you chronically overload a tendon, the tendon responds by getting thickened. So a lot of people will come and see me and they've got that little swollen, thickened, part of the tendon kind of right in that little mid portion, you know, above their heel. So that thickening um, happens in the tendon and, and the body doesn't deal with that very well, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't know how to heal that. So you develop um, kind of, you get these little ingrowths of capillaries and nerves and that kind of creates this pain. And that leads to a condition that we call tendinopathy. So it's a little bit different terminology than kind of the classic tendonitis, right? Tendonitis means inflammation. And what we see in these kind of chronically overloaded thickened tendons is it's not a pure inflammatory condition, which is why anti-inflammatories don't fix it, right? They may help decrease pain a little bit, but they're not going to fix it. So the, the literature that's been done to look at taking, you know, treating this Achilles tendinopathy or this, these thickened Achilles tendons focuses on first, you got to unload the tendon, right? So you got to rest the tendon until, you know, pain subsides. And then you have to gradually reload the tendon in a way that kind of helps facilitate some healing. And we can use things um, like um, nitroglycerin patches. There's some evidence that using nitroglycerin patches over the thickened, painful part of the tendon can be helpful. It takes a long time for that to help. I have a friend who actually, he, he was just explaining that to me last week that, and that's what he had done. He, you know, he's uh, an older runner. He's in his late sixties and uh, he, um, he had that done and he was raving about it. It was very successful yeah. for him. It does work really well for some people, but you have to be, you have to be pretty patient. It's not an overnight fix. It can take six to eight to 10 weeks or more for it to, for it to really make a difference. So you do have to be pretty patient with that. Um, so nitroglycerin patches are one um, procedures that we do in the office um, under ultrasound guidance. Um, like a, a tenotomy, which is a procedure where you numb up around the tendon and you actually make some tiny little incisions in the tendon. And that creates an injury where you then get blood flow to the area, right? So that's what we want. We want blood flow and we want all those platelets and growth factors and white blood cells and all the things that actually help heal injury. We want those factors there. Is that dry needling or is, is dry needling something else? It's similar to dry needling. Yeah, okay. it's similar to dry needling. Dry needling can be done by physical therapists um, uh, if they're trained in it. Uh, so that can be done in a PT office. Um, tenotomy is typically something that's done in a, by a physician uh, under ultrasound guidance. Okay. And then there's PRP therapy or platelet-rich plasma therapy, which is similar to the tenotomy, but we use a patient's own plasma to then inject it at the site uh, of the of the abnormal tendon to help facilitate a healing response. And then the key is getting into a good physical therapy program. Uh, and there's really good literature to support what are called eccentric exercises um, for Achilles uh, tendon problems. Um, there's the most famous protocol out there is called the Alfredson protocol. So that involves a, a series of um, kind of eccentric exercises done on a step uh, that kind of reloads the, the Achilles tendon in a way that helps facilitate kind of some healing. So, so that's kind of the, the process of, of an Achilles tendinopathy. Yeah, I, I think that's a very common one. It is, yeah. I, I think it sounds like a number of options to address it, but to avoid it, it sounds like just uh, don't ramp up your mileage so quickly. <laughs> and, and don't get, and, you know, don't get old. Because, <laughs> because you know, as we, as we get older, um, our, our, we lose muscle strength. 
So you actually lose muscle mass as you get older. Um, it's called sarcopenia. And then you also lose flexibility of your, of your connective tissues. So your connect, your tissues actually get stiffer. Um, and, and that's, that's a problem, especially in the Achilles is when that, that, that tendon is becoming stiffer, that kind of leads, that's a, a risk factor for developing that, that tendinopathy. Yeah. I remember when I was recovering from mine, the, one of the exercises that I was doing with toe raises, because when, when I was suffering from it, it I really couldn't do a toe raise. It, it just hurt so much. Um, mm-hmm. I would slowly, you know, increase, uh, the, the time that I was doing it. Yeah, there's a progression. So often we'll have people start doing a toe raise sitting down with their feet flat on the ground. And so there's less weight through your toe as you push up. Mm-hmm. And then you can gradually progress to standing up and doing a double leg heel raise on flat level ground. And then as that, as you feel better and get stronger, then you can increase that to doing it on a step and then shifting your weight to, you know, the, the primarily affected uh, foot. So there's a progression that we can do for people to, to make those exercises more tolerable. Right. And, and, and I went through something like that. I just didn't describe it too well, but. That's okay. That's all right. So, um, so this person who had recovered from the Achilles rupture, uh, she also had asked, uh, what are some recommended exercises or drills to continue preventing hip flexor stiffness and subsequent knee issues? Um, well, to, to answer her initial question about what does the Achilles tendon rupture mean in terms of her increased risk of injury, um, basically it, 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 it does increase her risk of, of a next running injury, of, of another running injury. There are kind of two primary risk factors for sustaining a running-related injury that are, that are well supported by the literature, okay? Um, the first risk factor is previous history of an injury. That sounds a little silly when you say it out loud, but the reality is if you've had an injury of, of any kind, unfortunately it does increase your risk of, of another injury. Um, the second uh, risk factor that seems to be re- pretty well correlated with injury risk is mileage. Um, mileage greater than 40 miles per week, more for male runners than female runners, and that's basically just because of the fact that male runners are studied more than female runners. Um, but so running more than 40 miles per week does increase your risk of, of a running injury. I don't know why males would be studied more these days, because I, when I go to events, I believe that there's more female runners than male runners. So, so I think that will change over time. We just get studied less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody thinks they can take literature from data on men and just kind of apply it to women. A few weeks ago in a podcast, we were talking about running shoes and, um, you know, it took a while before people realized that, Hey, a woman's foot is different than a man's foot. And, and so, you know, running shoes now are designed you know, specifically for women. And that wasn't always the case. Right. I don't know that we have any evidence at all that that will reduce your risk of injury. That seems maybe more of a marketing uh, thing to me than a true, uh, than, a, than, than ha- I mean, if you, if there's evidence out there supporting that, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to read it. Um, but that's, that's a little bit of the million dollar question in running, right? It's like, what kind of shoe should I wear? Yeah. So we'll get the shoes in a minute, but I, I, I want to, just finish um, on, on the second part of the um, question where the oh, sure. recommended exercises and drills to continue preventing hip flexor stiffness and subsequent knee issues. So hip flexor stiffness, I'm not sure if just addressing kind of hip flexor stretching and quad stretching would be enough to, to address that feeling of stiffness. The, the things that we know that can be really beneficial to help um, prevent knee pain in runners is actually strength training. So I know runners are often not, not very excited about doing strength training, um, but it can be very, very, very beneficial in terms of improving, not only improving your running performance, but decreasing your risk of certain types of injuries. So, you know, running is a, is a pattern, is a motion that's basically in a single plane, right? You're just running forward and it's just a series basically of like single leg hops over and over and over and over and over. There's no, um, there's no lateral movement. There's, you know, you require a lot of muscle activation in the pelvis to stabilize your hips 
But what we know is that runners often have really weak lateral hips and glutes, as well as uh, a couple of quad muscles, the, the vastus medialis and vastus lateralis muscles. So strength exercises that focus on um, not only strengthening your core, but also the lateral hips, the gluteus medius and minimus, as well as the glute max and the quads. So exercises like, you know, laying on your side and doing clamshells, uh, doing squats, banded squats, things that activate and strengthen those hip muscles are, are the best um, exercises to do to prevent the various knee issues like patellofemoral pain and IT band. A few years into running, I, I learned that cross-training was very beneficial. I, I joined a, a, a gym and uh, I do some boot camp. There's a class we call Tread and Shred, where it's a combination mm-hmm. of being on the treadmill and doing then doing yep. body weight exercises and yeah. uh, to do core strengthening. And, and I believe that's helped me. Yeah, it is. It's really important. Uh, but like I said, a lot of runners are resistant to it because it takes extra time. Right. Uh, you know, it's time away from running. You know, when you mentioned strength training, especially to, to my women athletes, you know, unless they're already lifting and enjoying doing strength training, a lot of them kind of balk a little bit at doing kind of strength work because they don't want to get big and bulky. And so it's just kind of, you know, re-educating folks about the benefits of strengthening these other areas around our core and our hips and our legs that are going to make us better, faster runners and decrease your risk of injuries. I agree with that. So we started to talk about shoes. Let's follow up on that. Sure. You mentioned some folks maybe would be better off with a cushion shoe. Um, do you have a, kind of any rules of thumb on how people should select their running shoes? Yeah. So this is a topic that's really been studied for a long time. People have kind of looked for this holy grail of matching shoe to foot type. And I think initially people said, well, look, if you've got flat feet and you overpronate, meaning your ankle kind of roll, your foot and ankle rolls inward as you're kind of going through your stride, then you should be in a shoe, a motion control shoe, right? It's got better arch support. It keeps your ankle from rolling in. But when they then studied this and they put people in with flat feet and, and over pronators, when they put them in motion control shoes versus just regular cushion shoes, there was no real difference in injury rates. So then we kind of came back to the drawing board and said, well, maybe that doesn't matter quite so much. The one foot type that does seem to do better with some arch support is people with a a high arch. So people with high arches tend to do better and have less injury with with a a more supportive shoe, either an orthotic, like a a custom molded orthotic to support their arch or a better arch support shoe. But my rule of thumb for patients is, are you wearing a shoe that's comfortable? Are you having injuries? And if the answer to are you comfortable is yes. And if the answer to are you getting injured is no, then you can wear, you can wear whatever shoe you're in, whatever shoe is comfortable for you. If the shoe is not comfortable for you, or you are getting these kind of repeated injuries, a stress fracture in your foot, and then maybe a calf problem, you know, then maybe we need to come back and look a little more closely at, you know, your foot type and the type of shoe that you're wearing and also your gait, like how you're actually running and, and potentially recommend some changes. Okay. So you, you mentioned orthotics. I use Superfeet and mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm not sure if they help me or not, but um, I'm, I'm doing pretty well with them. So I'm superstitious and, and I don't, I, when I buy a new pair of running shoes, I, I make the additional investment to buy some new Superfeet. Yep. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts on not custom orthotics, but general orthotics are. Yeah, it's funny that the opinions about orthotics can vary pretty widely. And I think if you ask a handful of different practitioners, you'd get a bunch of different answers. So there's definitely those people that kind of think if you have a, a foot type that's not kind of the classic normal looking foot type, you should be in an orthotic to support your arch and you just need to be in an orthotic. And then you've got the total opposite end of the spectrum where you think that no, nobody really should be in orthotic. We should basically all be walking around in minimalist footwear to strengthen our feet because weak feet are the problem. 
right? And an orthotic just makes that worse, right? Because it's just supporting the structure of the foot instead of having your muscles do that job, right? So there's a big spectrum. I probably fall somewhere in the middle, which is I don't necessarily recommend an orthotic for someone unless they're having a problem. Um, and it kind of depends on what that problem is. And often I use the orthotic potentially as a bridge, meaning we'll support the foot while we work on some other issues, whether that be intrinsic foot muscle strengthening, calf and hamstring flexibility, some changes in your gait. So it depends on the particular foot problem and what the issue was. But I do, I do recommend um, orthotics for some of my patients. Yeah, I started wearing them when I had shin splints, actually, and someone suggested mm -hmm. that. My shin splints eventually went away, so I don't know if the orthotics had anything to do with yeah. it or not, but I, uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm still wearing the orthotics today. Yeah, I do. I, I have talked to runners who develop shin splints about orthotics, especially if they have like um, those, those flat feet that overpronate or the ankles kind of roll inward. Yeah, that, that's me. Let's talk about running surfaces. Okay. Could you rank running surfaces with regards to injury prevention? Is there a difference between concrete and asphalt? So the answer to, to is there a difference between concrete and asphalt is yes, there is a difference. And I'll answer that in a second. And but in terms of ranking surfaces in terms of injury risk, it depends on what type of injury you're talking about, right? Are you talking about like bony stress related injuries that may be more associated with running on harder surfaces? Are you talking about soft tissue injuries like ankle sprains that could happen when running on softer surfaces? It depends on what type of injury you're talking about. Softer surfaces like grass, sand, dirt, trails, you know, those are all going to be maybe have less impact on your bones and your joints but they come with their own risks, right? If you're dealing with soft, unstable surfaces, then you're looking at, are you gonna roll your ankle? Are you gonna trip over a root or a rock and sustain some other injury? Yeah, trail running is very popular. Yeah, it is, it is. And, um, but it comes with its own set of risks, uh, not and stress fracture may not necessarily be one of them. What we know through kind of studying this is that your body actually adapts pretty quickly to the, the type of surface that you're running on. So when you're running on a soft surface like grass or sand, you actually, you're, you, you run with slightly stiffer legs. And when you change and you move to a hard surface, then you, your legs, you kind of automatically have some decreased stiffness in your legs. So you get a little bit more hip and knee flexion just automatically to kind of cushion from that harder surface. So your body adapts, even though you may not really be realizing it. But there's no, we don't actually have any good evidence that says running on softer surfaces decreases injury risk. We don't, that just doesn't, we just don't have that data. That seems to be the conventional wisdom though. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, there's a lot about running that we, we use conventional wisdom for that may not actually pan out in the literature. <laughs> but to, to the question about asphalt versus concrete, asphalt is probably better than concrete, right? Um, concrete is definitely harder. There's going to be more impact when you're running on concrete as opposed to asphalt. So I guess if you, if you had to choose one, like a concrete sidewalk versus an asphalt road, pick the road. Yeah, this, this person who sent the question, he um, recently moved to Texas and he was saying that all the sidewalks in Texas are concrete. Yes, yeah, they are. The concrete is definitely um, kind of harder um, uh, in terms of impact and ground force reaction. So, you know, if he could find roads that were asphalt, that might be a little bit better or dirt. What are some of the diagnostic tools that you would use to say, analyze someone running? If someone comes to you with a problem, would a video of someone running help? Sure. Wear patterns on shoes? Yeah. So basically when I, when someone comes to me with a running injury, we'll talk first, I'll hear kind of about what the injury is and how it happened. I ask them lots of questions, you know, about their training volume, about any potential change in, in their training. You know, did they recently add speed work or hill repeats? Did, did something change about their training? And then, you know, kind of once I have that information, I, I then will kind of just really look at people kind of head to toe 
and, you know, look at kind of them from a biomechanical standpoint. You know, are, are, are their hips nice and aligned? Are their knees aligned? Or do they have lightly kind of bow legs or a little knock need? What is their foot type? What is their ankle type? And then I'll do a little bit of a functional movement assessment. So have them move around a little bit in the office. And then, you know, obviously the physical exam of whatever, you know, kind of body part they're having an issue with. But I do often look at video of people running um, and that can be really helpful. So if you get a video of either uh, of running from the side, so either on a treadmill and having someone video you from the side and then from like behind, those are kind of the two views that can be really helpful because then, you know, you can go on the, on the phone and I can kind of slow that down and really kind of look at foot strike and pelvic tilt or kind of bounce or torso rotation. So that can be really helpful in looking and uh, trying to figure out, is there some underlying reason for, for an injury? Is there something about the way that they run? Yeah. So you mentioned um, bow-leggedness and so I'm bow-legged. So does that mm-hmm. present any uh, unique risks? Not necessarily. You know, it would depend on kind of what your functional movement looked like, right? Like what is your hip strength like? And, you know, is your, is your vastus medialis nice and strong, that sort of thing. So how would someone go about scheduling an appointment with you? So I see patients uh, at Bay State uh, up in Greenfield and also in Northampton. So there's, you know, the Bay State urgent care and family practice kind of building down on King Street. So I see patients there as well. My office number is 413-387-4125. So that's the main office number and, and folks can schedule an appointment through through that, either in Greenfield or Northampton, whichever is best for them. So if they contacted uh, the, the office, could they get an appointment directly with you or would they just see whatever physician is, is working that day? No, no. Uh, so there's only so there's two physicians in the in the in the sports and exercise medicine department at Bay State. Uh, there's myself uh, and Dr. Greenbacher. So there's just the two of us. Okay. So let's now talk about your own activity as an athlete. You're a longtime runner, cyclist, and, and triathlete. Yep. But your running has been hampered by ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah. That's a mouthful. It sure is. <laughs> Can we talk about that for a minute? Just could you just describe what that is and how has it restricted your uh, your activity? Yeah. So ankylosing spondylitis is an autoimmune condition that um, affects primarily the spine, from the SI joints kind of all the way up to the the skull, and it can affect other joints in the body as well. But kind of classically, it, it presents with uh, low back pain and stiffness um, and inflammation of the SI joints. And in the days before we had medications to kind of control this condition, you basically developed what's called a bamboo spine, which is a completely rigid fused spine from your SI joints to the base of your skull. So I think that happens less frequently now because we have some better medications to, to manage it, but it presents with a lot of SI joint pain and low back stiffness. That's how it presented in me. At least. So SI joint, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, sacroiliac joint. So those are the joints kind of in the, in the low back where your pelvis kind of joins your sacrum, which is that big triangular bone at the base of the spine. So I know when you were younger, you were a middle distance runner in high school. I did. Yeah, I ran, I ran track in high school. Um, I was also on the swimming and diving teams, played a little basketball as well, but track was my primary sport. Yeah. And so you've done triathlons as well. Mm-hmm. So have you done any, any events uh, in Western Mass in triathlons? Yeah, I've done a, a good amount of triathlons. So I started in when I was in residency, when we moved from Texas is when I really took up um, road cycling. And then because I had been a runner and because I'd been a swimmer and I started cycling, my wife looked at me and said, Hey, why don't you do a triathlon? I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. I've got plenty of time to train for one of those during residency, working, working 80 hours a week. Sure. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, obviously because of time constraints, I picked sprint distance as kind of like my beginner that, you know, kind of to, to just get a taste of it and whether I liked it. So a sprint try is it's a, A sprint triathlon is typically an 800-meter swim, a 15-mile bike, and a 5K. An Olympic distance is typically double that. 
So I've done the Whiteley Triathlon a couple of times. I've done the Greenfield Triathlon a couple of times. I did a big, uh, a bigger race up in New Hampshire called the Timberman. There are a few other smaller ones that I don't exactly remember the names of, but yeah. So are you doing any running today? I'm not actually running much uh, right now because of issues with my back, unfortunately. So I haven't been able to do much running, but I'm trying to bike a lot. I just did a, a big ride this weekend up around, you know, Northfield and Gill and Bernardston and down to Greenfield and back around. So I'm doing lots of road and gravel cycling, also some swimming. And I really enjoy doing strength training. That kind of definitely helps helps me as well. But unfortunately, running is, is not happening much these days because of my back. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, hopefully we see you at an event uh, sometime in Western Mass uh, if you ever yeah. get back into it. That'd be great. I think I did the um, time trials that they do over in um, near the community gardens in Northampton. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did a couple of those years ago um when i was running more um so that was that was a lot that was a lot of fun yeah that's that's not an easy course either <laughs> that's uh, no yeah. it's not so tara thank you so much for um being on the let's run podcast i um appreciate you uh sharing your expertise with with us was there any last thoughts before uh we uh say goodbye uh, no, I don't think so. I just wanted to thank you for for having me on and and having a a nice chat. I always like talking about this stuff. Why I love my job so much is because I get to, to to talk about this stuff with, with my patients and I really enjoy it. So thank you for having me. And if more questions come in and, and people want to ask more questions, I'm, I'm happy to chat again at any time. Great. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks. Take care, Tara. Thanks you too, Tim. Last week, Shelby Houlihan, who is the American record holder in the 1,500-meter and 5K distances for the 5K time of 14 minutes and 23.92 seconds, Shelby was suspended from track and field events for four years due to a failed drug test. Houlihan tested positive for nandrolone, an anabolic steroid. On the night before her test, she said that she ate a pork burrito from a Mexican food truck. Previous studies performed by the World Anti-Doping Agency have shown that pig offal, the internal parts of a pig, may contain nandrolone. This suspension means that Houlihan cannot participate in the upcoming Tokyo Olympics or the 2024 Paris Olympics. I hope they don't start drug testing at local races as I thoroughly enjoy the pork burritos from Two Rivers Burritos in Westfield. But seriously... Houlihan still may appeal the decision to Switzerland's highest federal court, but her chances of getting the decision reversed are slim. It would be truly sad if Houlihan was denied an opportunity to participate in the Olympics because she unknowingly ingested a banned substance from tainted food. In last week's podcast, I provided a complete listing of upcoming running events, which included some new events that were recently added since restrictions have been lifted. I'll give a quick rundown of those events here and highlight a couple of new events that have been added to the running calendar since last week. But I'll start with the local running club weekly race series events. On Monday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Empire One Running Club hosts a three-mile cross-country race at Stanley Park in Westfield. On Tuesday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club host a 5K cross-country race that starts on Burt's Pitts Road in Northampton. On Wednesday evenings, the Greater Springfield Harriers host their Summer summer Sizzler events at Forest Park. The run on Wednesday, June 23rd, will be on the 5K cross-country route. These events are still virtual time trials until July 7th. And on Thursday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Empire One Running Club hosts 5K races at Ashley Reservoir in Holyoke. The Elks is open for post-race food, drink, and fun. Also on Thursday evenings at 6.30 p.m., the Northfield Summer Road Race Series takes place. Now for upcoming races. Jesse's 5K run and two-mile walk is an in-person event scheduled for Sunday, June 27th at Nathan Bills in Springfield. 
The Harriers' Big Fourth 5K will be an in-person event at the Basketball Hall of Fame on Sunday, July 4th. And check out the Harriers' website for info on the Silver Bell Seasonal 5K Trail Run and Walk in Munson, which is a virtual event. Also on the 4th of July, 4Run3 is hosting the Freedom 4-Miler to take place immediately prior to the annual East Longmeadow July 4th Parade. An event that I did not announce last week is the third annual Chesterfield Gorge Ultra and 25K, which is the only 100-mile race in Western Mass. This will take place during the weekend of July 10th and 11th. All proceeds go to the Hilltown Land Trust. Now for a few local races this summer, hosted by the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club. On Sunday, July 25th, Nancy's run for the ACCRF takes place a four-mile race at Outlook Farm in West Hampton. And on Saturday, August 21st, the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club also hosts the 40th annual Montague Mug Race. SMAC also hosts the New England Green River Marathon on Sunday, August 29th. This race is already sold out. On Sunday, August 22nd, the fifth annual race to end child abuse takes place in Greenfield. Another event that just showed up on the race calendar is the Hoyt 5K Run and Walk, which will take place on Sunday, August 29th in Longmeadow. All funds raised will benefit the Hoyt Foundation and the 11 Team Hoyt chapters that Dick and Rick created around the United States and Canada. And September looks to be a busy month for races. The Westfield 5K, 10K, and Half Marathon is scheduled to take place on Saturday, September 11th at the Boys and Girls Club in Westfield. Also on Saturday, September 11th, the halfway to St. Patrick's Day 5K returns to Ashley Reservoir. On Sunday, September 12th, the Black Birch Vineyard 10-mile race will take place in North Hatfield. On Saturday, September 18th, the Don Maynard Memorial 5-mile race will take place in Greenfield. The Walter Childs Race of Champions, otherwise known as the Holyoke Marathon, is tentatively scheduled to take place on Sunday, September 19th. Also on the Harriers website, there's a link for anyone who would like to apply to run for Team Hoyt at the 2021 Boston Marathon. On Sunday, September 26th, the Sugarloaf Mountain Athletic Club hosts the Summit Run 5K, a race to the summit of Mount Holyoke and Hadley. And here's a few items outside of the Pioneer Valley. The Berkshire Running Center is hosting three races. The Glen Meadows 5K, 10K, and 15K in Adams on Sunday, June 27th. The Firecracker 5K in Dalton on Sunday, July 4th. And the 46th Mount Greylock 8-mile road race on Sunday, September 5th. And also, check out the Hartford Marathon Foundation website for a listing of all the upcoming events. My featured guest on next week's podcast will be Meredith Maslowski, who has run over 80 half marathons. Half marathons are the second most popular distance after 5Ks. Thank you for listening to the Let's Run Western Mass Running Podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and share with your friends. And as always, happy running. Happy running.